1 Peter 3, 13 through 17. And actually, for the sake of context, we're going to read 13 through 18. And as usual, you're going to find it helpful to be reading along with me. And this is God's word. Peter now writing to those, um, those uh, dispersed believers throughout uh, Bithynia and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Galatia, now writes to those who are suffering, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy. Or your Bible may say, but sanctify Christ in your hearts, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, one of the things that I've noticed as we've worked through this first letter of Simon Peter to the churches to whom he's writing is the way in which Peter's experience, and we've seen this as we've gone through various portions, the background of Peter's own experience is cast onto the light of the letter that he's writing and cast onto the situation in which his brothers around the world have found themselves. And you'll remember in the Gospels when Jesus came to Peter and he said to him, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you that he might sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have returned to me, go and strengthen your brethren. And you remember the story of how Peter, not long after that, told the Lord Jesus that he would die with him and he would die for him. And Jesus almost chuckling, I imagine, when he says this, will you die for me? I tell you the truth that before the rooster crows, you will deny three times that you knew me. And then we see the sad fall of Simon Peter when he is outside of the place where the Lord Jesus begins his sufferings. He is outside of that place where Jesus starts the work of redemption for Peter and for us. And Peter is out there just probably feet away from where Jesus is being led to trial. And he is asked three times if he knows the Lord Jesus and aren't you with him and aren't you one of his disciples and isn't he your master. And three times Peter denies him. And the last time is to a little slave girl. That's how deeply entrenched the fear of man is in our hearts that Peter would fear the the. The, the scorn of a little slave girl and would deny the Lord Jesus. And then we remember as Peter is restored by Jesus with that threefold, do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? And, and having wept bitterly when he saw the Lord look at him after the rooster crowed, now being restored after the resurrection. And we can imagine that Peter in his heart was heavy 
that he was heavy laden over the fact that he had denied the Lord Jesus. I imagine that Peter carried that knowing he was forgiven, knowing that Christ had restored him, knowing that he was going out and Jesus was commissioning him instantly to go and to preach the gospel uh, to the very people who had tried the Lord Jesus inside the palace where Peter had sat outside just before the resurrection of Jesus and had denied the Lord vehemently with cursing, now inside that palace preaching boldly. And yet I imagine that to his dying day, what Peter did there at that moment, at the beginning of the work of redemption, when he was there with the Lord, when the Lord had confessed to his disciples that he needed them in the garden when they fell asleep, and, and no doubt even Jesus was grieved by Peter's denial of him, I imagine that Peter carried that with him to his dying day, that his conscience often probably bothered him and he had to apply the gospel to himself and he had to realize what Christ had done for him. And I wonder, as we come to a passage like this this evening where Peter has been continuing on in that discussion of what it is for Christians to suffer and how Christians are to suffer, how Christians are to respond in a world that they don't want to live in, a world that despises them and hates them, a world that that persecutes them, a world that thinks ill thoughts about them as as the world thinks about the Savior himself, a world that rejects them, a world that makes even their own personal afflictions more difficult on them. And as Peter is trying to press these people on to go forward and pressing on in their pilgrimage to the, the everlasting inheritance that has been laid up for them in glory, I imagine, as Peter comes to this section, that Peter might have in mind his own failure to bear witness to Jesus outside of that palace and what it would look like what it would look like for believers in union with Jesus who are now suffering like the Lord Jesus to be faithful witnesses to the Lord Jesus in the midst of that suffering and to realize that God has a purpose in that suffering and that one of those purposes is in blessing his people now there are several layers of things that Peter are teaching here. And notice in verse 13, one of the things that he says when he begins this section, now who is there to harm you if you were zealous for what is good, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. One of the things that Peter has done, he's attaching it to the section that has just gone before. And he has said, as you'll remember from last week, that Christians are called to be a blessing. They are not called to revile when, when they are reviled, they are not to threaten when they suffer, but they are to commit themselves to him who judges righteously, and they are to be a blessing, and they are to abstain from speaking harsh words, and they are to abstain from thinking harsh thoughts, and they are to abstain from harsh and, and bitter and malicious and vindictive actions toward those that would seek to harm them. And what Peter is going to tell us in this short section between verses 13 and 18 is that blessing comes from suffering with a good conscience and that one of the blessings is that God makes us fruitful and bright witnesses to the Lord Jesus when we learn to suffer with a good conscience in the way that God wants us to suffer in this world and we realize that there is blessing on the other side of the trials and the afflictions. We're going to see this under two heads this evening. First, we're going to see this put negatively. Blessing comes from suffering with a good conscience, put negatively. And then we're going to see it, secondly, put positively. We'll notice as Peter leads in with the negative, the first thing that he tells these troubled and distressed and perhaps anxious and perhaps bitter 
suffering believers, that they are not to fear man nor be troubled by those who persecute them. Now, that may seem strange to you. You may say, how is it possible not to feel troubled when others persecute us? If any of us have known any persecution in this room tonight, it has been that psychological ostracization that we experience at the hands of men and women that hate Jesus. That has probably been the extent of the suffering that you have endured. I was suspended from work one time in my life for sharing the gospel on my lunch break. I was suspended and threatened to be fired. And that is the extent of the actual physical maligning and persecution that I have experienced. And yet I, as you perhaps have experienced, I have experienced much of that psychological and emotional um, scorn and, and the burden that we feel when others malign us and mock us and make fun of us for trusting in Jesus. I've experienced that often in my short Christian life. And I find it strange when Peter tells me that negatively the way that I'm supposed to endure that suffering is not to fear man nor to be troubled by them. Because the first thing that we feel when people uh, offend us or attack us or persecute us or malign us is troubled in our spirit. We feel an unrest, and part of that is because we want the approval of men. We all have a Simon Peter spirit in us. We want the approval of men. We want to be liked. We want to warm ourselves at the fire of acceptance the way Peter warmed himself at the fire outside of the palace where Jesus was suffering. And the fear of man is deeply ingrained in our hearts and our minds and our consciences. And even the best Christian, and I've met those Christians that act so tough and so rigid, those Christians that act like nothing bothers them, and they're going to man up for Jesus. And in the very deep recesses of their hearts, they have the same idol of approval that every one of us has. And they may not be able to spot it, and they may think they've avoided it, but it is part of the fabric of our fallen nature to fear man and not fear God. And so Peter is saying here in this section, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Do not fear man. Do not be troubled if you suffer for righteousness sake. Now, the words that Peter gives here echo almost verbatim what Jesus taught Simon Peter in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, blessed are you when you suffer for righteousness sake. And they mirror the words that Jesus taught the disciples when he said to them, I'm sending you out as wolves in the sheep, uh, wolf, uh, sheep in the, the midst of wolves and do not fear man and don't fear man that can kill the body. And after that has nothing else he can do, but fear him who after he has killed can destroy soul and body in hell. And it's the storyline of the prophets. If you took time to read through the prophet Isaiah, you would find that at the, the heart of Israel's idolatrous worship and giving themselves over to other gods and turning to the world and becoming worse than the nations was the fact that Israel feared man. And Isaiah gives us a clue. He says, do not fear man whose breath is in his nostrils. And then Isaiah gives that grand vision that when God comes back in judgment that men are going to try to hide behind rocks and they're going to fear the presence of the glorious God of the universe. And they're going to tremble. The very men who persecuted and maligned and who tempted God's people to turn away from God and to turn to false gods and to idols. And so notice that 
Peter asks this question, verse 13, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Now, you may say, wait a minute, there are plenty of people that can harm me. There are plenty of people that can hurt me. We're watching it on the news. We're watching our brothers and sisters in Syria and Iraq suffer under the hands of ruthless men who are martyring them for the name of Jesus. We are watching men be harmed for the name of Jesus. But ultimately, and this is the big thing to keep in mind, ultimately, those men are not harming the people that they're suffering. You're saying, wait a minute, what do you mean by that? Because what God is saying that there is blessing on the other side of that persecution, that they are actually hastening the process of God doing his people good. What we need more than anything is to think properly about a reality that doesn't look like what it is. What we see is not what we get in this world. That is the big thing that Peter is trying to press into the minds of the people to whom he's writing. What you see is not what you get in this world. What we see is not what things really are in truth. We don't see the hand of God providentially bringing everything to the fulfillment that God has promised that he will bring it to in his word. That's why we live by faith. That's why we walk by faith. This is why the scriptures say we walk by faith and not by sight. It's why the Apostle Paul, telling us the same thing that Peter tells us here, says that our light afflictions, and if you've ever read the book of Acts, Paul's afflictions look anything but light. Our light afflictions, which are momentary, are working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. What Paul is saying is that things are not what they seem. That ultimately, even the harm that men seek to do to Christians inevitably turns out for their blessing and their good. Notice verse 14. Even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. You are blessed. You will be blessed. You will see the rich fruition that if you're suffering for living godly lives because you're following Jesus and you want to honor the Lord Jesus and bring glory to his name and you are suffering for that, you will be blessed. I want to read to you, I think this is a phenomenally helpful statement. Um, William Still, remarking on this passage, said, One of the great secrets of blessing in this wicked world where we live, where we have to live as Christians, is to endure suffering, persecution, and trial Because whatever may be the mind of the devil for it, to hurt us and to do us harm, God is able to turn it and use it for a greater good than we would enjoy without it. You have to listen carefully. William Still is essentially saying that the secret of blessing in Christians receiving the blessing of God is that God uses the suffering and the affliction and the persecution to bring a greater good into our lives than we would ever receive Without it, still goes on. We are not to look for suffering, although in a sense we're to expect it, and we may be sure that when we are willing to endure it and expect it in a right spirit as our Lord did and as the apostles did, it is for our good and for our blessing. God allows persecution, God allows affliction, God allows trial to come upon us to test us, and so that we may learn to endure it and in enduring it to be blessed by it. That's remarkable. What still is pulling out of Peter's letter is that God is teaching us that not only are we to endure afflictions, but that in enduring them, we are blessed by them. Listen to this. God has sent it 
for another purpose. I want to back up here. Hold on. Listen to this. God has sent it for another purpose, not that you may kick against it and hate against the revilers. That won't do you any good. Maybe it won't even do them any harm. So our natural inclination is to say, I want bad to happen to them. I want them to suffer. I want them to to get coals heaped on their head. And we fail to see what is God doing with me by enabling me to endure the affliction and the trial and the affliction. And we fail to say that God, we fail to see and we fail to say that God means greater blessing for his people when they learn to endure afflictions than he would ever give them if they didn't have any afflictions. Now, chances are good some of you don't believe that. And I'll tell you why that's so hard to believe, because you almost never hear it. You'll never hear that on the news channels that you watch. You'll rarely ever read it in a book, especially if it's a new Christian book. You're not going to read it in a biography. You're not going to read it in much fiction. You're never going to see it on television shows you watch. The natural inclination is to get back. If you're a strong person, you get back at someone for what they do to you. You pick yourself up. You go forward with your dignity. You get them back. Notice this. I want to read this. William Still goes on to say, aggression is a sign of weakness and of fear. You have to think about that. Seems like it's courageous to be aggressive to those that hurt us. Actually, he says, for the Christian, aggression is a sign of weakness and of fear. The strong person is most often the calm, gentle, assured person, humble and gentle and gracious. Wow. That hit me right between the eyes when I heard that. The calm person, the strong person, is gentle is willing to take the wrong, is, is knowing that God's got everything under control, that there's no crisis in the providence of God, that God is not at a loss to figure out how to make all the trials and all the afflictions work for the greater good of his people. And you know how we can be assured of this? Not just because Simon Peter said it, but because Jesus said it repeatedly. Jesus said that, that you will be rewarded if you suffer for righteousness sake. You are blessed. It is a mark of blessing. It is also a sign that you will be blessed. Now, we need that because when the persecution comes, we need something to hold on to. I was talking to a woman recently who, whose husband had left her and and had told her that she was vastly overweight and unattractive and had said a lot of really hateful things apparently to her. And and she said, I've lost all this weight and I'm going to show him. And it 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 was the natural reaction when people hurt us. It's the natural reaction. It's your natural reaction. It's the natural, sinful reaction. And what Peter writes is so unnatural to us in this fallen condition. And we need to hear it. Peter tells us negatively, do not fear men. Do not be troubled. Who's going to harm you if you're zealous for what's good? If you suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. But then secondly, he puts it positively. Notice what he says now in verse 15. There is sort of a step in the progress of how do I get there? What else? What can I do so that I can get to that place? Because if all I say, if all he says is, 
don't fear men, don't fear those who can harm you, then it, it feels kind of vacuous. It feels, well, okay, what am I supposed to be stoical and just hit me again and hurt me again? And should I, it, it feels like I'm in a vacuum now. And, and Peter doesn't leave us there. He tells us, don't, he doesn't say just don't fear other people. He doesn't say just don't fear those that can harm you. He doesn't just say, know that God can bring blessing and a greater good than anything you can ever imagine if you hadn't suffered out of that suffering. Notice what he says now. He gives us the positive instruction, but sanctify Christ in your hearts. Set apart Christ in your hearts. I like the the New King James Version here. Sanctify the Lord Christ in your hearts. The surest way, the surest way for us to be able to understand these things and live in light of these things is by going to the Lord Jesus and on a daily basis praying that God would cause him to be formed in us, that we would be saturating our minds in the truth about Christ. I think when he says set apart Christ in your hearts as Lord, he means make sure that you know the truth about Christ, that you're communing with Christ that you're trusting Christ, that you're praying that God would form Christ in you, and that by sanctifying him in your heart as Lord, that you are walking according to his will. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That holiness would be the course of our lives. That as we are trusting Christ for forgiveness, we are also trusting him for the power for godliness. That we are going to him and asking him to change us, and asking him to enable us not to fear men, but to fear God. I think that sanctify the Lord Christ in your hearts encompasses the totality of Christianity. It's what it means to live in, as an experiential follower of Jesus, trusting him, living in light of his gospel, living in light of his priesthood and all that he is for you. I want to say this this evening. If you are actively and daily seeking to see Christ formed in you, if the cry of your heart is, the life that I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If you are going to him and you're saying, Lord Jesus, without you, I can do nothing. I want to abide in you and I want you to bear fruit in me. If you are doing that on a regular basis, you will make it through the times of persecution and trial. You will learn to receive the blessing on the other side. You see Job, don't you, grappling in the book of Job as he's suffering. You see him grappling in his soul before God. And Job, and I've mentioned this already, he comes out on the other side because in the middle of the book of Job, in the middle of his soul anguish after all of the physical suffering that he endured at the hand of the evil one, Job cries out, I know that my Redeemer lives. It's one of the greatest professions of faith. It's one of the greatest examples of a man who sanctified Christ in his heart because when he was in the middle of his whole world falling down around him. And even his closest friends said, you must have done something really bad, Job. In the midst of that, when there was no sign of any spiritual blessing on Job, Job said, I know that my Redeemer lives. That's what it means to be someone who learns to sanctify Christ in their hearts. I think that Peter's doing something else here, too. I think that one of the things that Peter's doing is he is moving his hearers and you and I away from a cheap layer profession of faith. 
because Christianity is a religion of the heart. You know, there, uh, John Calvin, as he commented on this section, constantly returned to that idea. He said, there are multitudes who can verbalize a profession of faith in Christ. There are multitudes who can talk about Christianity, can just talk, but, but very seldom few who actually have hearts that have been gripped by the gospel, hearts that are sanctified unto the Lord and who have set apart the Lord in their hearts. Um, it's everything that Paul said, isn't it, in Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Peter is making sure that his hearers do not just take an intellectual approach. He's not writing a a philosophy of suffering. This is not a theodicy. He's not writing a philosophical treatise on why Christians suffer and what good comes out of that. He's writing a pastoral letter to a people that need to hear that the surest way to get the blessing and to endure the suffering is to sanctify Christ in their hearts. Now, when we do that, there's a blessing that will already accrue in the here and now. Notice what Peter goes on to say. He says, sanctify Christ in your hearts and be prepared to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet to do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. Now, what Peter tells us is that believers who suffer Believers who go through afflictions and trials and difficulties and losses and believers who sanctify Christ in their hearts and endure those are preparing themselves to give a reason to others who won't understand why they're going through what they're going through. My best friend, Stephen, when he broke both his ankles, he fell 12 feet off a house last year broke both his ankles and was in the hospital and was in excruciating pain. And one of the nurses said to him, I've never seen anyone respond to pain the way you are. And he said, all I know is the Lord was sustaining me to be a witness. She said, the bitterness most patients have. You see this at the cross, right? You see the two thieves who are crucified next to the Lord Jesus writhing in agony and they're cursing and they're hurling insults and they're insulting the Son of God, and yet Jesus is there poised and calm, praising his Father, trusting his Father. And he becomes a witness. You know, sometimes we, we think about witnessing, and one of the faults, I think, with American evangelicals especially, is that we think the louder we are and the more vocal we are and the more impassioned we are, the bigger the difference it's going to do in winning others to Christ. Peter, it's very interesting to me. This is fascinating. The most impulsive and outspoken of all the apostles, and the one who is used almost singularly of God to be the bold proclaimer of the gospel through the first half of the missionary endeavor to the known world in the beginning of Acts, is the one that has told us already in this book that wives without a word can win their husbands when they see their chaste conduct accompanied by fear. And now in the next chapter tells us, or in the same chapter, that when we sanctify Christ in our hearts, and we prepare ourselves to give a reason, a defense, an apologetic, it's the word apologia, to give an apologetic for the hope that's in us when we are asked. The assumption is, by the way, you will be asked. That's something you can think about. The assumption is you will be asked. People will say, why does that person have so much hope that will be ready to give a defense 
for the reason of the hope. We'll be ready to tell them the gospel. We'll be ready to explain to them what Christ has awaiting us and how he purchased it. And we'll be able to do it with gentleness and with meekness. And we'll have a good conscience because we're not suffering for anything we've done wrong. I think we could spend the rest of the week meditating on verses 15 and 16. One of the blessings that God intends for his people, and you have to listen very carefully, one of the blessings here and now that God intends for his people when they suffer is that he makes them into witnesses through the gentle and meek spirit that they have and the hope that they're holding fast to in their hearts in the midst of those trials in the way that they respond to others that gives them a platform to tell others about the hope that they have. Um, Notice finally what Peter says here as he continues to explain the blessing that comes from a good conscience. In verse 17, he says, For it is better to suffer for doing good if it should be God's will than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now very quickly, one of the other blessings in this life that believers receive as they go through afflictions, is that they learn, they learn to identify more closely with the Lord Jesus. They learn, they learn how to suffer the way the master suffered. Remember in the, those great discourses in John's gospel where Jesus tells his disciples, you know, if, I, if they hated me, they're going to hate you also. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you also. There's an identity between believers and the Lord Jesus. You know, we've talked a lot about knowing our identity, that the Christian life is lived by us knowing that we've been adopted and that we've been justified and that we're being sanctified. And forgetting our privileges means that we don't live the fruitful lives we should live. Well, I would say this this evening, that forgetting the sufferings of Christ and then when we face trials, responding in a way different than him shows that we don't understand the blessing of suffering like our Lord Jesus. There is a blessing and there is good that comes out of it. Notice what Peter says. He he holds forth Christ as the example in verse 18. Christ suffered once for sins. We're we're not suffering for our sins. We we are persecuted for good. We're not suffering for the sins of others. Christ was doing good and suffering for the sins of others. But notice the righteous for the unrighteous. There's the analogy. If we suffer for doing good, remember Christ, the righteous one, the only one that didn't need to suffer, the only one that shouldn't have suffered, did suffer. He did it for the sins of his people. Notice, here's the blessing, that he might bring us to God. Now, here's how I think all this ties together. I think that Peter is saying, when we go through trials and afflictions and are persecuted, and we do it for what is good and right and holy, and we don't, we don't do it for doing evil, we suffer for good, we, in turn, identify with the Lord Jesus, and we learn more of what it means to be in union with him and for him to be our master, but we also learn that God uses that for the redemption of people. Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. I think Peter putting that evangelistic, apologetical statement just before that and then stepping into what Jesus has done is telling his hearers one of the chief goods is that God will use you as an agent of redemption in the lives of others if you respond this way. And that just as sure as Christ's work resulted in bringing us to God, 
our lives in this world, sanctifying Christ in our hearts, will be used in bringing others to God. It will be used in bringing others to Christ. Now, I think that the greatest thing that we need as a congregation is to give great heed to our spirits when we are being tempted to respond to things that our flesh hates, things that are painful to us, trials and afflictions and persecutions. We should give great heed to what Peter's writing. We should settle it in our minds and we should do it now that God intends us good. That what Jesus said, blessed are you if you suffer for righteousness sake. We need to settle that in our minds. Because I think even some of the most well-taught Christians in some of the most faithful churches on the planet need to hear that day after day after day precisely because of what I said at the beginning of the sermon. Because everything around you is telling you otherwise. Everything in this world around you is telling you, if God's for you, everything's going to go well. No, it's not just health, wealth, prosperity preachers. It's the majority of Christians that you'll pass, you'll, you'll pass in the street, in passing conversations. Most people believe that if God is blessing you, things will go well in your life. And the Bible says, if God's blessing you, things are probably going to go wrong in your life. And they're going to be hard. And they're going to be difficult. But the reason God has left you here to experience that blessing is that you would be a quiet and gentle and meek believer who bears witness to your faithful Lord Jesus in the midst of those trials, who has that steadfast hope set before you. You know, I often think, and I'll close with this, of how Johnny Erickson Tata puts every Christian I know to shame. She puts every Christian, there's nothing you are dealing with in your life that comes remotely close to having the use of your arms and your legs taken away from you for like 50 years. Nothing. And yet the joy and the hope and the gentleness and the meekness and the way that God has used Johnny Erickson Tata to speak into the lives of perhaps hundreds of thousands of millions of people because she sanctified Christ in her heart. She's ready to give a reason for the hope that's in her with meekness and godly fear, she has a good conscience before God. That's what God wants to make all of us. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this evening what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we recognize how far short we fall of these things. We recognize the weakness of our flesh, the sinfulness of our minds and hearts. We recognize again this evening, our Father, how much we need you to prepare us to suffer and to be persecuted for what is good. We pray that you would make us a people who are zealous for what is right and good, a people who do not fear man but who fear you. We pray that you would fill our hearts and minds with the fear of you, Lord, the reverence and the respect and the awe that you alone deserve. We pray, our God, that we would not be harsh and, um, and, and lead with the arm of flesh in seeking to bear witness to your Son. We pray, Father, that on a daily basis, you would make us a people who set your son apart in our hearts and are ready to give a reason, for a defense of the reason for the hope that's in us. We pray, our God, that these things would mark our lives. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give us grace to meditate on your sufferings and the blessings that have come to us from them. 
that we also may be, be a blessing to others through our own suffering. We pray these things in your name. Amen.